Kidlet. Hello, writers. I'm Alexis. And I'm Brittany. Thank you for joining our community, centered around growth and discovery in the world of Kidlet. Today, we are chatting with Kate Albus about her new book, Nothing Else But Miracles, a Junior Library Guild gold standard selection. Her first novel, A Place to Hang the Moon, won many awards, including SCBWI Crystal Kite Award, New York Public Library Best Book for Kids, Kids Indie Next List, ALSC Notable Children's Book, CCBC Choice, and Junior Library Guild Gold Standard Selection. Read to Write Book Club members loved the attention to historical detail and the impactful emotional scenes in Nothing Else But Miracles. As this wasn't your debut, did you find you had less pressure to write the book that would land an agent versus more freedom to tell the story how you wanted it? That's such a good question, and it's not one that I've ever been asked before. Um, I think, you know, in some ways, um, I, I, I actually wrote this book. I wrote Nothing Else But Miracles before A Place to Hang the Moon had come out. So it really felt very much like a um, like I was still writing from this safe little cocoon of just writing for myself and writing for my own kids and writing the story that was in my head um, as opposed to really having any clue about the the quote-unquote publishing community the publishing world um and that i think there was something very free about that about about writing what with both of my books um with a place to hang the moon i, I wrote that book honestly with no intention of it ever being anything that other than something that my own kids would read um, I never had publishing dreams. Like the thought didn't occur to me. Um, after I wrote it probably the, the close to 10 years ago and just kind of put it aside and kept on writing because it was something that I enjoyed doing. But years went by before I actually, before the thought actually occurred that anybody ever might want to make it into a real book. It, in retrospect, that was a really nice way to write. It was a really lovely way to write from a place of just pure joy in living in this imaginary world. And I think because I had no idea what to expect with actually becoming part of, of the publication community, um, my experience was much the same in the actual writing of nothing else but miracles. I was just sequestered away in my little room here where I didn't know anything about anything and nobody knew anything about me. So I, yeah, I, I would guess, I think this, my experiences with the actual drafting were pretty similar. That's really cool. I love that, that joy of writing. And I'm glad that you, you have that. Um, I feel like there is a lot of pressure to write for publishing and I need to remember that aspect. So I really like yeah, that. Absolutely. Right. Writing from a place of joy, I think is, is, uh, I mean, otherwise why do it? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one of our favorite scenes as a book club was at the carnival and that emotion was just fantastic. And so we want to know 
what do you think the most important thing is for a writer to effectively write a scene with an emotional impact? Again, you you can tell that you all are writers because you come up with really, really good questions and also very, very unique questions. I've never been asked a, a lot of these questions before. So um, I'm going to punt to one of my absolute favorite um, grown-up historical fiction writers who I saw speak at a bookshop in, in D.C. a number of years ago. Mary Doria Russell, who talked about how she needed to fall in love with her characters, that if she was going to spend a year of her life with a person living in her head, she needed to be in love with them. And that really resonated with me. And it's something that I think about a lot, that I have to feel like a visceral love for the person or people that I'm writing about. Um, and so for me, I think maybe emotional scenes come from that, come from um, really caring deeply about the people that I'm writing for, what, whether they're happy, whether they're sad, and ultimately in making them happy or giving them what they're looking for, that feels, I mean, you know, in, in any story, you're going to have your main character is going to go through some stuff. And so the the gratification in being able to give your characters who you love what they've been looking for um, is, I think, just it's a it's a lovely thing and and a blessing. And um, I think in many ways, the Coney Island scene was that for me um, in terms of giving Dory, the main character, um, a moment of really deep and profound connection with this with this friend in in her world absolutely so building going along with them for the ride and then finally having the the release and the gratification that you also want the reader to feel along with you you feeling it as you're writing it with the character and then translating it so that the reader has that same experience and release as well. well maybe different things that drive different writers i i'm a big believer in for me, the stuff that most makes me love reading is the same stuff that most makes me love writing. So I'm somebody who wants to read a book where I fall in love with the characters. Um, I'm all about the characters in anything that I'm reading. And I find that the same thing is true for writing. For other writers, my bet is that they get the same charge out of like the mystery aspect or the pure putting together of words aspect of it or um, or crafting plot or action scenes. Um, for me, it's about, it's about characters. Yeah. I feel like we can definitely tell that I've read both of your books now and the characters are driving it, even though it's historical fiction, you have that aspect, but then you have the characters that you forget it's historical fiction kind of easily, not in a bad way, but you know, you. <laughs> very character driven. So I think that that's, that's a good point to love your characters. Is there a craft book or method that you typically like to use when you're writing? I have to admit, I'm not a big craft book person. Um, I've never 
I've never taken a writing class like beyond beyond the stuff that we all had to take when we were in elementary school and middle school and high school. Um, the craft books that I tend to gravitate towards are more anti-craft books, I think. Um, more books. Um, the one that I always recommend to people if if you're not daunted by one that's super thick is George Saunders' A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. Have y'all read that one? I just bought it. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> so I, it, it is, I mean, I have the number of index cards that I have sitting here on my desk with stuff that I wrote down from that book, the, the premise of which is really, um, so it, it's called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four Russians, I think it's four, four Russians give a masterclass in something, masterclass in something about writing. Um, and he actually, he, it's a distillation of a, of a creative writing class that he taught for decades at Syracuse University. And it's about, um, it's about 19th century Russian short stories, which I know nothing about and have no interest in he reprints the stories in there and then sort of picks apart what makes them good stories, what it is about them that makes them compelling. And over and over and over again, the thing that makes them good is, I think the way that he puts it is, why is this sentence good? Because it pleases me. And that's it. Like that's that's kind of, it's, it's really an incredibly, um, it's a motivating book. It's a book that basically says, go out there and write and then rewrite a bunch of times until you have something that pleases you and just know that you've got this is pretty much his, his thesis. It's, it's incredibly encouraging, incredibly validating. It's just a beautiful exploration, I think, of the creative process. So it's a little bit of an anti-craft book in that it does, it's not like it says, you know, step one, step two, step three. Um, but I love, love, love that book. I'm looking forward to reading it. I, I really did just buy it. Um, Don't be daunted by the whole, when I first, I, I loved George Saunders already. Like I loved Lincoln and the Bardo. He wrote a, a middle grade ish book that I loved a, a long time ago. Um, uh, the very persistent gappers of Fripp, which is this wackadoodle um, middle grade book that I used to read to my kids all the time. So I already love George Saunders, but when I saw that particular book come out, I was like, "Oh goodness!" Like 19th century Russian short stories. I don't know that I could do that, but uh, I loved it. So would you say that you would shy away from following plot structures, uh, beats, if you will? You would shy away from that? It's not even so much that I would shy away from them, because to be honest, when I talk to friends who that is, that's their writing process, I'm actually super jealous because in my, in my everyday life, I think I work really well with structure and organization and I see people with like whiteboards and stuff where they're writing out the beats of their story or they have like color-coded sticky notes. And I'm super jealous because I'm usually a color-coded sticky notes kind of person. 
but I find that with writing, I'm just not. I sit down and try to write an outline and I just am lost. I'm completely frozen. I just have to sort of find my way in and whether the stories turn out to subscribe to those traditional frameworks and, and, and storytelling beats, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not actually sure. But I, I can say that I'm jealous of people who who have that sort of framework in their head. I wish that I that I did, but it's not what works for me. That's awesome, though. I I think it, I mean it works for you. Mm -hmm. uh, so, what do you think the function of subplots are in a novel? For example. Dory's friendship with Vincent, how did that enhance the themes, the plot, and the character arc? Oh, gosh. Um, again, as someone who sort of finds their way into a story, that particular subplot was so fun to find my way into. Um, there's like this little hint of super awkward 12 year old romance, but it's super, it's a tiny little, like it's the awkwardness of 12 year old crushes. And there was something that character Vincent sort of grew in the writing to turn into, you know, how, how lovely to have an awkward 12 year old crush turn into a genuine friend and, and how lovely to have a main character's journey with a supporting character be about realizing the importance of kindness and recognizing the importance of kindness. And that really came to be what Vincent was, was about as a, as a character. I mean, the, the whole book is sort of about these little unexpected miracles that that get thrown at you in your life and and you know i think that's one that dory didn't really see coming that this awkward boy that's had a crush on her could actually turn into someone who she cares very deeply for and and feels great things for beyond just the awkwardness so I'm trying to find a quote because that just made me think of a part of your book and I don't want to give spoilers, but there was, it was during the carnival scene and just basically, and there were, like you said, a lot of moments with these little miracles that were in such a hard time. They have their dads and their brothers and people off at war fighting World War II. And then you have these small snippets of fun and love and like when they're holding hands or, you know, just these little glimpses of finding the love and the brightness. And I can't find the quotes, but there was one quote that I did, not the one I'm thinking of, but where she sunk down in the water of the pool and everything blocked out. And she said for a moment, the world was right side up for a moment. It almost felt like an ordinary summer day. And I just love how you sprinkled in those, those pieces to yeah. along with the sadness and the seriousness. Well, thank you. I I like to think that in that that's one thing in some ways writing books about such a horrible time when people were deprived of so many things, both material comforts and loved ones, um that um those everyday things like the feeling of the sun in in a in a swimming pool in July 
or um, just everyday little comforts, I think are that much more magnified um, in the context of such loss and such deprivation. And we noticed that the moment with Dory going inside the dumbwaiter included a lot of description. How do you decide what to stretch in terms of description and explain um, more than others? You know, I agree that that scene has a lot of description and it's very long. And if you can believe it, it's probably like five times shorter than it originally was. Really? <laughs> that the, in, a, in a very early draft, um, I actually, um, there, there were multiple times of going back and forth to the, to the, the secret space. And it was really only Dory's secret space in sort of my first imagining um, but it just became too repetitive. Um, and so somewhere along the line, I actually think it was when I read about how historically the Statue of Liberty, which had been dark um, or, or dim for the duration of the war as part of the dim out in basically every city, um, that the Statue of Liberty on the day of the, on the night of the Normandy invasions actually did light up and allegedly blink the Morse code for V for victory. And when I read that in wherever, some website somewhere, I had one of those moments where I was just like, oh, like how can this not be in this story that's about a kid who talks to the Statue of Liberty? And so that was a, that was a change. I ended up sort of rewriting the the structure of the story to fit around that moment in history. And it also simplified, it, it gave, it gave Dory this message that she needed to help give her brothers a place to help save her brothers by giving them a place to hide. Um, and it simplified that particular moment in the story so that there was really only one time of, of going up in, in the dumbwaiter and which I agree still has a whole lot of description in it. Um, it's the first time I've ever written something that to me felt kind of like scary and action adventure-y a little bit and which was really fun. Yeah, that that's, it's, a, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question other than to say that, believe it or not, it's a lot shorter than it used to be. Well, what I'm hearing you say is there's a lot in your method of exploration and leaning into what is feeling right and fun and joyful as you're writing it. So here you say that you know you found this moment with the Statue of Liberty potentially doing the Morse code of V and having that be, okay, well now that's gonna be integral to the story because I feel that that's important to my character, whom I love, as you were saying earlier. And I think that that's really interesting, especially given historical fiction genre being something heavily researched and kind of continually learning about that time period and how it was to live in that moment. Yeah, yeah. Finding that particular historical tidbit really did completely reshape the story in terms of, of rewriting the story to both to fit around that and to have D-Day, to have the Normandy invasions be 
um, an important part of the story in the sense that ultimately that is the reason why their dad sort of drops off the face of the earth for, for a little while. Um, so yeah, funny how this one little event that's actually really hard to find information about online, like enough so that I, I, I Googled repeatedly to try to find information about it at, just to reassure myself that it actually had happened. Um, so funny too, how an event that to me seems incredibly momentous, maybe to people of the time was like, oh, look, she's lit up again. Cool, you know? So switching gears a little bit, talk to us about dialogue and how you approach using dialogue in your writing. Well, I would say, first of all, I am a real avoider of the word said. I find myself like doing anything to avoid saying he said, she said. Um, and I don't know why. I mean, there shouldn't be anything wrong with it, but but it's something that I real that I that bothers me. So I jump through any number of hoops to try to not use the words he said or she said. So in my first drafts, there's probably a million times when it says such and such character sighed. And then they say something instead of say instead of the he said or she said. And then I realize, oh God, this person has there is so much sighing or you know what whatever it may be sighing, smirking, whatever whatever it is to mark who who is speaking. I I don't know where that comes from that sort of allergy to dialogue tags, but um, I I find that to be true in my initial drafting and then. For me, reading out loud is an enormous part of figuring out whether dialogue is working or not. Um, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of reading out loud, even if you're just sitting alone in a room by yourself. It doesn't have to be reading it out loud to another person. But there's something, for me at least, about actually hearing the words and having to speak the words as opposed to just reading them silently in my head that clarifies a lot of a lot of things dialogue being one of them can you continue uh, along with your revision process overall describing your revision process um in keeping with that that same last point i'm a big read out loud person when it comes to revision ideally if if possible if i have a day, an uninterrupted day, my preference is to read it beginning to end to get us in one go, like, you know, getting up to like, get a glass of water and pee and whatnot. But, <laughs> but um, to me, that, that one reading through in one shot is, uh, is what helps me get a sense of places where it drags, places where it's repetitive, places where it doesn't make sense. And also, and also some of the good stuff, like that little thrill that you get when you're, when you're reading something that you wrote or that somebody else wrote where you're like, oh yeah, I like that. I hope that stays. <laughs> um, so I'm a big believer in, in reading out loud and reading in, like when I, when I um, read manuscripts for friends, I, um, I try to get them done really, really, people say, oh, you got that done so quickly. But in large part, it's because I 
I, in order to really get a sense of the flow of a manuscript, I can't break it up into chunks. I, I have to, I have to do it kind of in one go. I realize we, none of us has that luxury all the time, particularly if you've got little kids and when, when possible, I like to read, um, in as big of a chunk as, as time will allow. In general, I prefer drafting to editing. Um, so maybe that's the other reason why I want to get it all done in one chunk so that I can uh, be done with it. <laughs> so you've already mentioned a few things, but were there any other aspects of your story that were not in the original draft that came out through your revision process? Yeah, you know, um, it's funny. Uh, a Place to Hang the Moon, my first book, really stayed largely intact from, from the first draft. There were things that were developed along the way, but the story itself pretty much stayed intact. Nothing else but miracles, that was dramatically not the case. There were massive changes, both... Uh, you know, in my own first couple of drafts, as I said, you know, it used to, there used to be multiple trips up to the old hotel space. It was much more about Dory um, and, and not so much about her brothers. Um, at one point I had her finding like a whole journal of a girl that had stayed in the hotel back in the 19th century, but that ended up being a it just felt like too many moving parts and too confusing for a reader and too much for anybody to keep track of. So those kind of changes happened early on in my own editing process. And then in the process of working on, on developmental edits with my editor, Margaret Ferguson, there were, again, pretty significant changes. The one that was the biggest was that in the original draft that she read, they do find the diamond. And, oh. and I give Margaret 100% credit for the idea that maybe they don't. Um, that was something that I thought about doing in a very early draft, but I thought, well, you can't do that. You can't put a diamond, dangle a diamond out there for kids to read about and then be like, sorry, they don't find it. But when Margaret told me that I could do that, I was like, oh, okay, well, great. So that, that was a, yeah, that was unique, I think. I like that aspect, that ending. <laughs> I did too. It, it, it ultimately ended up feeling really right and feeling like it fit better with the whole message of the book, which is that it isn't about, you know, getting rich overnight. It's the little things, the little everyday things that are miracles in our lives. Did you visit any of the places that you wrote about? I did. I did. I was actually just in the old hotel space last weekend. Um, oh, wow. So it's, so I grew up in New York, um, first in Staten Island, then Long Island. I still have uh, still have friends in in Manhattan, and um, when when I first read the New Yorker article that that told me about this old hotel space, I started doing more research into it and found that it still exists and that it actually has been very lovingly preserved, much the way that it was found 
when the author of this New Yorker article and the guy who owned the fish restaurant on the ground floor of this building, mm -hmm. when, when they actually hauled themselves up in this creaky old dumbwaiter and visited this space that nobody had been to in like 30 years. Um, that that writer, that, that New Yorker um, magazine writer, Joseph Mitchell, served for many years on the board of the South Street Seaport Museum, which now administers the space. So um, actually during the pandemic, the, the museum was completely closed. And I did something that's incredibly out of character for me and emailed the curator and was like, oh, I'm an author and I have this book coming out. And it wouldn't be possible for, for if I put on a mask and show you my vaccine card and et cetera, et cetera, is there any way that I could see the space? And she very kindly said yes and brought me up there and gave me a whole tour. Um, and then, yeah, last weekend I got to, um, the she uh, collaborated with the lovely people at Holiday House at my publisher, which is literally like a five minute walk from this space to um, to have an event in in the in the building, which was which was really, really cool. That is so cool. Did your feeling while being there change at all after having the novel completed? I had completed the book by, okay. by, by the time I visited for the first time. And, and honestly, being in there after having sort of created it in my head, it was, the, it was among the most magical experiences I've ever had. It was, it was extraordinary. Um, it, was, it was not the way I imagined it, but in some ways it was probably even better. I mean, they still have like, there's still like the peeling wallpaper and like holes in the walls and pieces of old beds and, and stuff like that up there. So it's an extraordinary, extraordinary place. That's cool. How long did you spend on drafting versus revising your story? This one was probably a little bit quicker in the drafting than a place to hang the moon than my first one. Um, I would say probably about six months of drafting. And then, you know, it's in terms of both my own revising and then the revising that I did with my, with Margaret, my editor, um, it's a little bit hard to judge what the time was. Cause especially with working with Margaret, there's like, you know, you get an edit letter, you do your edits, you send them back and then you wait for months and sort of twiddle your thumbs and wait and then get another edit letter. But all total, I would say probably maybe six months for the drafting and the better part of a year for editing between my own edits before it was, while, while I was still making my own revisions and, and additional revisions with Margaret. I'm not somebody who, um, I think I would do a really bad job of writing on proposal or writing um, on, on a deadline. Like, I feel like if I'm going to put something out there, I need to be confident in its in its ending, at least in my, its intended ending. Like, I, I don't think that I'm the kind of a writer that could just, like give a one paragraph summary in the first three chapters and, and feel like, Oh yeah, I, I know where it's headed. I could, I could do that. I think I would completely freeze. So, um, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I'll report back on that, whether I ever actually reach the point <laughs> that I feel like I could ever write something on proposal. Uh, is there a favorite part of your story that you wrote? Oh, gosh. You know, to go back to to go back to Dory and Vincent, I can say that there's this this I mean, not to spoil anything, but there's like the briefest of tiny little kisses on the cheek that follows like the two of them literally sharing a malted, which seems like the most 1940s thing that could possibly happen. And the biggest cliche, like two, two kids sharing a malted with two straws. Um, and it was so much fun to write. And I remember actually texting writer friends and being like, guys, seriously, I just wrote a scene with two kids sharing a malted at Coney Island. And yeah, so that part was just sort of ridiculously fun and delightful to write. Well, it showed that was another moment of very impactful, effective emotion with the two of them. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, what is your proudest moment or biggest accomplishment with this book? Oh gosh, I um I don't I don't know proudest accomplishment. I mean having getting to have that event in the actual space where the book happened was an absolute like dream come true kind of scenario. But honestly, I, I know you you guys will be able to see this, but the people that are just listening to the podcast won't be able to see. But I just did an event at a bookstore this weekend and there was a kid <gasps> who crocheted a Statue of Liberty for me. And I'm holding it up to the oh, screen beautiful. right now. But she was a kid who I had met at a bookstore event like a year ago. And she knew, I guess she, I mean, she she read the book as soon as it came. She read nothing else but Miracles as soon as it came out and knew that I was going to be coming back to this bookstore and showed up with this, crocheted Statue of Liberty for me. And I about burst into tears. It was like, yeah. there is no greater honor than, than that, that right. Than, than a kid who feel, who feels some sense of connection to the stories that you write. It, it, I couldn't have asked for anything more than that. And she did fantastic. That's yeah, that beautiful. Great. That was beautiful. Right? You know, Alexis, I'm, I, I do love working with the needles. I'm not a big crocheter, but I told her, I was like, I would never be able. That's way beyond my skill set. She did good. She right? did good. Yeah. Um, as you know, we are a book club and a podcast for writers with the mindset of we are always growing and learning. Even if we are published or when we are published, there's always more to learn and to develop as craft. Do you think that there is anything craft-wise that you have learned now being on your sophomore book, if you will? I know you were writing them both kind of um, before they were published, but do you think there was anything you learned or grew from your first book and your second book? Gosh, craft-wise, I mean, I, 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 I do want to go back to the idea of, of writing from a place of joy. Um, yeah. I, I think that's become more and more apparent to me that 
that's really the best place to write from is, is a place of, of genuine love for whoever and whatever it is you're writing about. Um, so I'm not sure that's necessarily craft advice. Um, but honestly, the, the other advice I think that I would give to any community of writers is something that you're already doing by virtue of the fact that you have this group that you found your people. That has been the, the biggest, as somebody who, again, had only ever wrote things squirreled away alone in my little room mm -hmm. up here, I had no idea that I would become part of this community of lovely people um, and generous people, incredibly generous people who are willing to share their time and their thought and their knowledge and the friends that I've made in on this journey. Um, I had no idea I would get that out of this. And I am so deeply grateful for it. So craft wise, again, you all are doing it already because you have each other. And I'm assuming that you share drafts and bounce things off of one another and yeah, take advantage of all of that, that, that beautiful network of, of kid lit people out there. As I've said, I had no idea that the generosity of spirit that was out there. That's cool. And I agree. It is nice to have your people. You all included. You all, <laughs> you all are totally, you know, you you all are um you're you're doing it, you know, you are are sharing the the joy of stories for kids in fantastically creative and generous ways. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you for including me here. Well, thank you for joining us. And you know, we all enjoyed reading your story and uh, yeah, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. My absolute pleasure. I'm so grateful to be invited. So thank you, thank you, and happy writing. Thank you for listening. Join our community on Substack, links below.